0: past few weeks, if you're here with us today for the first time, my name's Jake Duncan, and for the past couple of weeks, we have just been giving a little bit of an update on where we are at as a church, as a family, as a body of believers, and um, sharing a little bit about the things that we've been learning, and how those things are shaping us, and how those things are affecting us, and and forming our lives. And uh, today, we are going to jump into the Word. Um, I'm a little... I'm a little word-starved this morning. So, um, I mean, it's good. It's good to share where the house is at. It's good to share from your heart. And by the way, if you were here two weeks ago and you missed last week, I'd really encourage you to, to hear last week's talk. It, it really was a complementing of, of the week before. So, uh, those two messages really do go hand-in-hand. Hand. And... Um, we're going to continue in the spirit of the state of the house, but this is going to be much more uh, word heavy. So if you have your Bibles in Acts chapter 9, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 1, and we're going to look at the story of a guy named Saul. And for, for our friends who were with us today who, who might not be um, very familiar with who Saul is, who later became Paul, the, uh, the apostle, uh, I'm, I'm going to give some background, and, and we're going to really fill in the gaps here. But the title of my talk today is just simply, Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. And we never graduate beyond that simple commission to follow Jesus. We never, we never bypass that. We never mature beyond the simple mandate to follow Jesus. That is the command that's been given to us. Is the command that's been given to the people of God two thousand years ago, and uh, and it will remain the command until Christ returns. Follow me. Come where I am taking you. So, Acts chapter nine, verse one. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, what is the way? Jesus said to his followers in John 14, he says, I am the way, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And so the Christians, they weren't called Christians yet until Acts 11, but here They're known as those who follow the way or belong to the way, they're followers of Jesus. So you could say of us, we are people who belong to the way. You could say of us, we are people who follow Christ. You could say of us that we are Christians. Whether men or women, that he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. I love the fact that he was on a journey It wasn't a good journey. It was on a journey to go uh, imprison and kill Christians, but he was on a journey nonetheless. And on this journey, Christ meets him. Verse four, he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Very interesting statement there. Who are you, Lord? of this particular account, but I think this is probably a good place to start and we'll go back to the beginning of this and start breaking things down. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Now, we're gonna talk a little bit about who Paul became, but before we find out who Paul became, let's find out who Paul was. Who was this man named Saul? Who was this man who Christ decides to interrupt his travels And reveal himself to Saul in this powerful uh, God encounter. Well, Saul was a Pharisee. Saul Saul was a man who loved God, believe it or not. He was a man who loved Yahweh. Saul was a highly disciplined man. He was a highly intelligent man. He was a highly educated man. He was a passionate man. Many people would call him a zealot. He was a religious zealot. He was a guy who was black or white. He was all in. There was, there was no half hearted, lethargic uh, compromise in this guy, Saul. Saul was all in for what his conviction was. Saul was on a journey to defend God. I, don't know, I think we forget that, that Saul was actually on a personal assignment to defend the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Paul, Saul was astutely versed in, uh, in, in, um, in the scriptures. He had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. There probably wasn't a thing that you could challenge Saul on that, that you would get by on him, except for one thing, except for this understanding of who Jesus was. Now, a little bit of history here. The book of Acts begins in Acts chapter one, where Jesus has resurrected from the dead. He returns to his disciples and his followers, and he is teaching them about the kingdom. The scripture says, for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus teaches his disciples about the kingdom, which is interesting because throughout the entire tenure of Jesus' three-year ministry, The focal point of all his teaching was the kingdom. And yet, after his death and resurrection, he determined that there were still elements about the kingdom that they yet did not understand. After three years of an intense discipleship internship, face-to-face, 24 hours a day with Jesus, he's like, there's still things that you don't have. And I would probably guess that even after those 40 days and those 40 nights, that there were still things that they didn't understand about the kingdom. Here's how I know. After this time, the scripture says in Acts chapter one, they go, when are you coming to restore the kingdom back to Israel? And he's like, you don't got it yet. But here, I'm gonna fill you with the Holy Ghost and it's all gonna make sense. So just wait, just wait. I'm gonna pass this on to my helper because I gotta get back to heaven. I can't handle this anymore. Acts chapter 2 the church is born and it's born in the power and the fire of the holy spirit on the day of pentecost when all of the believers were gathered together in one place suddenly the sound of a violent wind filled the entire house where they were all sitting and they were all had tongues of fire that came on them and they began to speak in tongues acts chapter 3 Peter and John go and they heal a guy who's been crippled since the time he was born. Acts chapter 4, religious leaders do not like the fact that these guys are proclaiming in the name of Jesus who Jesus was and what these guys did. The religious leaders, they don't like the fact that now Peter and John are telling everybody that it's the religious leaders' fault that Jesus died and now they're using Jesus' name to heal people. Acts chapter 5, we find out that there's. uh, it starts off with uh, the story of a a couple named Ananias and Sapphira who lie against the Holy Spirit. And right there when they lie against the Holy Spirit, they fall down dead. Great fear comes upon the entire church. And yet we find that the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of Jesus with power and signs and wonders and miracles. This is, this is so fun. Acts chapter 6 we find that the church is is in a crossroads. It's in a pivotal pivotal place because uh, thousands of people are coming into the church on a weekly basis. And we find that Acts chapter two, thousands of believers come into the church. Acts chapter three, thousands of believers, they're coming in to the church and the infrastructure that Jesus had been building on these 12 men was starting to burst at the seams. And they realized really quickly, if the kingdom of God is gonna continue to advance through the church, we're gonna have to Build the church. That's what Acts chapter six is all about. We find that there are certain set of Grecian uh, widows who are who are being overlooked in the distribution of food, and uh, the Hebrew widows are getting fed, and the Grecian widows are not getting fed. Acts chapter six, verses one through nine, and so then there's an uproar, and there's complaining, there's conflict, and that's what happens when the church grows. There's conflict. There's tension, there's problems that need to be solved. Growth produces problems, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. We have to be careful about how we respond to those challenges. And we can either find ourselves on the side of accentuating the problem or being a part of the solution. And so the apostle says, guys, listen, we have to stay devoted to the word of God and to prayer, but you guys choose seven men who are known among you to be full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, and appoint those men to begin leading, to begin directing, to begin stewarding, to begin shepherding. And so they do. And here's the amazing thing. These guys, somehow, amongst this group, there were seven men. They were known. They were known. Their character was known. Their faithfulness was known. Their heart, their motivation, their servanthood, their responsibility, their leadership, their understanding of the spirit and the scriptures, it was known. They were not operating in isolation. And then we find that they choose two guys I'm gonna pull out. One guy's name was Philip, and one guy's name was Stephen. Acts chapter seven and eight, we find that Stephen is put on trial. He's put on trial and just like Jesus was put on trial and just like Jesus was set up and just like Jesus had false accusation, people actually planted in the midst of this trial To bring false accusation against Jesus, the same thing is happening to Stephen. And we find in Acts 7 and 8, Stephen stands up against this religious spirit, against this spirit of opposition and persecution, and Stephen walks them through their own scriptures, beginning with Abram, all the way through the prophets, up until the point of Jesus, and he tells them, you guys are responsible for killing the Savior. You know what they did? It killed them. They didn't like it. They did not like to hear what Stephen had to say. Guys, be careful. Be careful when you become so staunch in your belief system that it actually leads you to a place of such violent opposition that you say, there's no way that I'd ever kill in the name of God. Because when we slander and when we uh, tear down and assassinate people's character, you may not be killing somebody in the natural, but Jesus says, if you harbor that level of stuff in your heart, it is the same. And the religious spirit, you know what a religious spirit is? We, see, we think that we know what a religious spirit is. A religious spirit is simply when you think that you know. That's what a religious spirit is. And we, got all, we, we attach a religious spirit to a form. We attach a religious spirit to a structure. We attach a religious spirit to something that you do more than once. So that means we got to give up birthdays. And that means that we got to give up singing songs that we like to hear. And that means that we got to give up uh, Fourth of July barbecues. And anything that you do more than once in that ideology is religious. The spirit of religion says, I know and you don't. That's what a religious spirit is. And a religious spirit at its core is a spirit of ignorance and arrogance. It's a spirit that says, I'm right and you're wrong. You can carry a religious spirit into your marriage. This is the way that you do things. I'm not listening to you. At its core, a religious spirit is unteachable. At its core, a religious spirit is hard-hearted. At its core, a religious spirit looks for where you're wrong and where I'm right. That's all a religious spirit is. Jesus, I want you to understand this. Jesus lived in one of the most religious environments known to humanity. Think about it. He was murdered because of the religious paradigm that people are operating in. Don't do anything on the Sabbath. Don't heal on the Sabbath. I mean, he lived in an intensely religious environment. And you know what? He still honored the Sabbath. And he still went into the synagogue, the religious structure of their day. And I can show you scripture after scripture. Scripture says that Jesus went to the scriptures as was their custom. Customs and rhythms and patterns and schedules and disciplines. They are not in and of themselves inherently wrong, you guys. Jesus honored the customs and the traditions of the day. Yet he spoke to the religious attitude that people would operate in where they would want to make the form the function, where they would want to elevate the form over the heart. Religious spirit is all about what's happening in your heart. See, I face this at you all the time. Now, at you back in the day, we had curfew. We had dress code. See, some of the new generation, they don't know any of those words. I couldn't go to the cafeteria and eat if I didn't have a tie on. Now here's, yeah, whoa. And so here's, here's what guys used to do. Guys, guys would take a dress shirt and they would cut the dress shirt off. They would cut the sleeves off. They would cut it off right here. They would cut it off right here, and then they would put a, a, a sweatshirt, or they would put a baggy. I would put my big baggy double XL Duke sweatshirt on, but I had my tie on. As long as I had my tie, you know what that was? That's religious. Because do you know what the heart of that rule was? The heart of that rule was learn how to dress in a manner of excellence. Learn how to get the spirit of excellence inside you. Learn how to function outside of something that's comfortable for you. Learn how to be presentable in the business. Now this is 20 years ago. But so when you look at that rule and all you do is is conform to the external demand of that rule without allowing the spirit and the heart and the motivation of that rule get inside of you and change you, you're operating a spirit of religion. So you can do the most charismatic thing and it still be religious because your heart has not conformed to the spirit and the purpose of why that thing was designed you understand what I'm saying to you this morning? Jesus lived in the most intense religious environment, and he was not religious, even though he still did what all the religious people were doing. So this is Saul. Saul was one of these guys. Now we're back, we're back to Acts chapter 8, and here, here's what's interesting. In, in, uh, let's actually look at the end of Acts chapter 7. So in Acts chapter 7, verse 59, while the religious leaders were stoning Stephen, they prayed, or he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of their killing. Who is Saul? Saul was the guy that was right there. Imagine his imagination. Imagine after coming to Jesus. Imagine all those quiet travels when he's going from one city to the next to plant churches. Imagine all those years when he was sitting out in jail cells, how the enemy would try to bring back to his remembrance the vision and the memory of Stephen's face because he was there. And not only was he there, he was the one who was responsible. He was the one who was giving his approval for the first martyr of Christendom. It was Saul. This is our Saul. Let's look at Philippians chapter three. Let's learn a little bit more about this guy. And if you read through all of the epistles of the New Testament, you'll find magnificent things about who this man became. But what I think is so powerful is that everything that he wrote, when you trace it back to this origin, when you trace it back to this moment in time, it begins to help make things make sense. Philippians chapter 3, we're gonna look at verse 3. It says, It is we who are the circumcision, it is we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence. In the flesh, What does that mean? No confidence in anything that I can do. Not my gifts, not my charisma, not my ability, not my education, not how many books I've written, not how many conferences I've spoken at, not how big a church I've built. He says we don't put confidence in any of those things. We never point to ourselves. We always point to Christ Jesus. But look at verse 4. He says, I have reasons for such confidence in other words he's saying listen if we want to play this game i'm gonna smoke y'all because y'all can't hang and then he gives us his resume if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh i have more you sound really arrogant right now paul He he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. And here's my favorite. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. He's like, I put my money where my mouth was at. I killed those heretics. I want you to think about this. When Jesus interrupts Paul, or Saul, when Jesus interrupts Saul, Saul was on his way to Damascus. It was a six-day journey by foot. Saul had left Jerusalem because most of the work there had already been done, and Saul wasn't content for there to be any infidel or any heretic in any of the region. And he says, I'm not I'm not satisfied with just dealing with these, these Christ followers, these, these heretics of God. I'm not satisfied with dealing with them in Jerusalem. I'm going to root them out everywhere. This is the Saul we're talking about. He says, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. That's amazing. That is amazing. Do you realize? I go back and read Leviticus. Go back and read all of the, the the minutia. That's the law. That's the law that Saul was dealing with. We're not talking about love God with all your heart, your neighbors, yourself. No, we're talking about every jot and tittle of the law, every detail. He says, I did every single ounce of it, all of it. That's the saw we're talking about. You know, as I thought about this, it's one thing to go to fishermen and say, follow me, and unlearn everything you've learned. Well, those fishermen, yeah, they were they were part of the culture, and, and yes, they grew up in God-fearing homes, but it's another thing to go to a guy like this and say, now I'm gonna confront you. Imagine being a guy who for the past 30 some odd years of your life from the time probably you were five years old, everything you memorized, everything you learned, all the Torah that you studied, all, all, all of the campaigns that you executed in the name of God, going back and in one moment of time realizing I missed it. That's what's going on right here. This is who Saul is. Let's go back to our text in Acts chapter 9. This is going to start getting fun. In Acts chapter 9, Saul is on his journey. He's on his way to go imprison these heretics. And then here in chapter 9, verse 3, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly. A light from heaven flashed around him. I love that. In a moment. I've got a lot of objectives in this message, but one of the objectives that I have amongst the many of them is for those of you who are praying for people in your family that don't know Jesus. Let me tell you, this is a prayer strategy because it don't get more impossible than this. It does not get more impossible for someone to become a follower of Christ than this man right here. And and, and look what happens. In a moment, in a moment, in a suddenly moment, a light flashes around him. Now, light in the scriptures is characteristic of two things, glory or encounter or revelation. So in this revelation in this encounter of glory, something happens. Number one, chapter nine, verse four, Saul falls to the ground. And it's interesting that if we're really gonna follow Jesus, you guys, we've gotta change our posture. You don't know everything. You don't know it all. I don't know it all, but this is not coincidental. Now, it's obviously very physical and very literal, but I think there's something very prophetic about this. Paul falls to the ground. I mean, in his religious ignorance and arrogance, he could have become stiff-necked, and that would not have been a good story. But see, here's what we need to understand. All of those years of the Old Testament soaking and saturating his heart, he was reminded... What happened when Joshua encountered the angel? Joshua fell to the ground. What happened when Moses encountered the burning bush? Moses fell to the ground. What happened when Samuel heard the voice of God calling out to them, even though he didn't know it was the voice of God? He responded, who are you, Lord? Here am I, speak to me. The the, the scriptures of the Old Testament saturating his heart. He knew what his response was in this moment. Even if he didn't know who Jesus was, he knew this looks very, very familiar to how people encountered God of the Old Testament. And so he falls to the ground. He humbles himself. He postures himself in a place of receptivity. And if you wanna, if we want to follow Jesus, if we want to grow in Jesus, we've got to reconsider our posture. We have got to humble our minds We have got to lower our disposition. We have got to change our attitude. We have got to fall to the ground, prophetically speaking. For those of you didactic, linear thinking people taking notes, number one, if you're taking notes, what happens when we follow Jesus? Our paradigms will be shaken to the core. Most of the people in this room, I will say most of us, not all of us, but most of us. There's a good chunk of us in this room. Most of us have been following Christ more than 20 or 30 years of our lives. Most of us in this room have, have, have been to numerous conferences. Some of us have been to Bible schools, universities. Many of us have asked us to podcast, listen to them over and over and over again. And those things are marvelous and they're brilliant, except for when they're not. They're marvelous and they're brilliant, except for when they, they, they cause us to double down on what we think is right and everybody else becomes wrong. Saul was shaken to the core, guys. Saul was transformed in one moment from a murderer in the name of God to a man who was broken and humble and saying, who are you? Now here's what I think is interesting. Jesus changes this man's life with a question. See, we're not really good at asking questions. We're great at making statements. We're great at telling people what we know. We're great at assuming that we know what the reality of the situation is and then telling everybody else about it. But Jesus doesn't do that, Jesus asks questions. Jesus leads us into a place of discovery, not by telling us all the time, but by asking us so that he can get us questioning our own sense of reality. And then, I, I love this, he says, Saul, Saul, which is indicative of emphasis, but it's also indicative of love. I mean, there's times when I've read this in my journey where it was just very, very strict, Saul, Saul. And then there's times when I read this and I hear the voice of a father, Saul, Saul. Sometimes when I'm with my kids and I'm disciplining them, it's not just one Kenya, it's Kenya, Kenya. Son, son, son. That, that, was, a th- that was a three point. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's serious business here. The emphasis of love, the voice of a father calling out to Saul, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? You want to talk about a paradigm shift Here's what you need to understand. If you're gonna follow Jesus, you need to understand that how you treat God's people is how you're treating God. You talk about God's people, you're talking about God. You hurt God's people, you're hurting God. You slander God's people, you're slandering God. You write off God's people, you're writing off God. You reject God's people, you're rejecting God. I mean, on and on it goes, guys. this, this This is the primary revelation that Jesus chooses to bring to Saul. Now, if you meditate on this passage, you'll notice that the primary uh, objective hermeneutical laws here, right here, is saying, anytime you start seeing something mentioned more than once or twice, it's, it's, it's telling you this is the point of the author's intent. And here's what we find. Jesus asks him, why are you persecuting me? I mean, think about this, guys. If you're Saul, Jesus could have asked you a thousand things. He could have got into the inner workings of the Torah and you would have known exactly what he's talking about. He doesn't go there. He says, Why are you why? What is the heart behind this? What is the purpose? What is the intent? What are you after in persecuting me? And here's what happens: in one moment, in one question, Paul Saul realizes this: You are not the God that I thought that you were. Guys, listen, this is massive. You are not the God because the God that I'm serving would sanction this. I'm doing this for you, God. I'm doing this with your blessing. I'm doing this with your approval. And then all of a sudden this guy shows up who's Jesus, the son of the living God. And we find in Hebrews 11 or Hebrews chapter one that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So this figure that Saul has completely done away with, now all of a sudden he's realizing, you are the one that I have completely spoken against my entire existence. You are the one, you're the one, you're the one that we crucified. You're the one that we rejected. You're the one that we murdered. And all of a sudden his world is just completely ripped apart. So this is what he says. This is what he says. Saul doesn't answer the question. Saul doesn't say, because he's broke. I don't know why I'm praying. He doesn't even say it. He just says, who are you lord I don't know who you are I don't know I thought I knew I thought I knew I thought I was doing every I thought I thought I had this figured out I've devoted my entire life to this I've paid the price and now I realize I don't know who you are Guys listen when you encounter something that is completely Paradigm shattering. Here's the question that you need to be asking. You ready for this one? Who are you, Lord? That's the question. When your world is turned upside down with things that you didn't expect, when you prayed all the prayers and you decreed all the decrees and you said all the prophetic things and you fasted and you prayed and you, listen, here's what you need to say. You need to say, God, I don't know who you are. I don't know who you are. Who are you? When your pastor starts saying the Lord's Prayer every week and we start going to the table of the Lord every week instead of once a month, here's what, here's what your response should be. Say it with me. Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Because there's something about you that I don't know. There's something about you I have not discovered. There's something about you I have not experienced and this is all about us discovering and loving and living for and following Jesus. Who are you, Jesus? Who are you? Who are you? You know what the Holy Spirit's job description is? According to John chapter 14 through 16, it's to reveal Jesus. It's to elevate Jesus, not us. The job description of the Holy Spirit is to point all of our affections to Jesus, not to not to show us how great we are, as great as we are in Jesus. Understand what I'm saying. So number one, when you follow Jesus, you need to just be ready. You need to be ready you 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 need to we need to say lord come in and completely rearrange my entire way of thinking if you allow him he will do that number 2 you, you we need to say lord if we're going to follow you help me to love your people like you love your people in the scriptures The metrics of spiritual maturity is not your gift. I could preach the fire out of this stage if I wanted to and go home and completely be a jerk to my wife. That is not spiritual maturity. It don't matter. The only person it matters to are the people who don't know me. But the fruit matters, the character, the transformation matters to the people who gotta put up with me day in and day out, up close and personal. She don't care about my gift. She's like, you better go take that preach on somewhere else. Show me how you can, you preach to them dishes. You just preach on, brother. Preach on. Preach on. Prof- you prophesy to the trash can. You take out the trash. You don't prophesy to the trash. You take it out. You want to practice deliverance ministry? Take the trash out. So this is what Saul asked Jesus. Who are you, Lord. I don't know who you are. Everything is being turned upside down right now. And here's what Jesus responds. Now, this blows me away. Of everything Jesus could have said, he could have said, I am the resurrection and I'm the life. And it would have been true. He could have said, I I am the exact representation of the Father. And it would have been true. He could have said, I'm the bright morning star. I am the Emmanuel. He could have said all of those things, a thousand definitions and titles and descriptions of who Jesus was. And they all would have been true. But for Saul, here's what he needed. Look at what Jesus says to him. Let's go. Acts chapter 9. And let's look at verse, uh, let's look at verse five. I am Jesus. That's all you get. And here's the qualifier, the one you're persecuting. We haven't even scratched the surface here, but here's here's what Saul needed to know about who Jesus was. You need to know that you are persecuting me by imprisoning and slandering and murdering my people, my family, my body, my church. These are not just metaphors. This is reality. And I think, I think that we need to get that into us. Guys, listen, I've got to repent because there was a day that I thought I was better than the Baptist and the Methodist and the Presbyterians and the Episcopals because I had the baptism of the Holy Ghost and I can shandala beso so cobreya and I could lay hands on the sick and I could, and I began to realize after a while I'm persecuting Jesus. And every time I talk against some preacher out there because I think I know better than him, I'm parting with the spirit of religion and I'm persecuting Jesus. In my heart, in my attitudes, in my mindsets, I am persecuting my God. Because if I do it to my brother, I'm doing it to him. And if I do it to my sister, I'm doing it to him. And we got to get that into us on a deep level. That's what it means to be the church. This is not coincidental that the apostle of the church of the New Testament, his primary come to Jesus moment, quite literally, His come to Jesus moment, Jesus was like, here's what I want to start your apostolic ministry. That when you hurt my people, I take it personally. Guys, listen, not coincidental. Not coincidental. That of all the things that Jesus could reveal to Saul, the apostle of the, 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 the early church, it was this revelation. You're persecuting me. This is who Saul became. Saul became the guy. <laughs> Saul became the guy who said things like this. Let's go to 2 Corinthians. Let's find out who Saul became. Jonathan, come on up here, man. We're gonna go to the table here in a second. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter four and let's go to verse seven. Let's just read some, let's just get a glimpse of who Saul became. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. All of these manifestations, all of these gifts, all of, these are all from God and they're all for God. This has nothing to do with us. That's who Saul became. We are hard-pressed on every side, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We are not in despair. We are persecuted. We are struck down. We carry around in our body the death of Jesus that's who Saul became. Let's go over here to 2 Corinthians chapter six. Look over here in verse four. Rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Look at how he's identifying himself. I'm a servant. I have been broken. I have been crushed by this encounter with Jesus. Friends, if you really encounter Jesus, it's not gonna be about your title, It's not gonna be about your position. It's not gonna be about how much you can get from how great you are. You're gonna be crushed. And your identity is, I'm a son and I'm a servant of the living God. And here's what happens. Sons and servants suffer. They suffer. Now I know that goes right in the face of some charismatic word of faith theology, but I'm gonna show you here in a minute. If we're gonna follow Jesus, we will suffer. And when you suffer, you say, Jesus, who are you? Correct, correct my perspective of who I thought you were. Don't double down and go back and defend your word of faith ideology that you heard from some televangelist. Go back to the scriptures and Jesus and say, Jesus, who are you? Who are you? That's what we do when our orientation is turned upside down. Because here's, here's what he says. He says, the servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, troubles, hardship, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, riots, hard work, sleepless nights, hunger. That doesn't sound like a word of faith message to me. Do you understand what I'm saying here today? Maybe not, let me make it really, really clear. This is what came out of that encounter. Something got so deep in this, in this murderer. Something got so deep in this religious, arrogant zealot that he said, Jesus, I'll do anything for you. If I've got to go into prison, if I've got to get beaten, if I've got to jump over a ship, if I've got to go without food, if I've got to go without sleep, this is for you. And, and, and this is for your church this is for your people we can't miss that one Saul was transformed as a hater of the church to a lover of the church Saul would say things like this he would say I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you the people of God I am in the pains how does a man say that? And all the women go. But in the place of prayer, he was birthing something and it was painful. It was painful. And he recognized that. And he said, I'm going to labor and I'm going to push and I'm going to groan and I'm going to travail and I'm going to intercede for you, Galatians and you Thessalonians and you Philippians and you at Colossae and you in Rome. I am going to stay in the place of prayer and fight for you until Jesus is formed, until you grow up, until you mature. You know why? Because he fell in love with the church. he encountered jesus you cannot have an authentic encounter with jesus and hate his people yeah it's bold but i said it it's impossible don't tell me that you love me and hate my kids yeah they might be bratty yeah they might run around yeah they might disrupt things but you cannot authentically love me and hate my wife it's impossible So, where are we? Where are we going? And we're following Jesus. And Jonathan, I just want to, man, I just want to sing this song. It's just been in my spirit all week long. I have decided to follow Jesus. Come on up here, you attendants of the table. Where do we go with this? Where do we go with this kind of message? Where do we go with this kind of mourning? We come to this table receiving grace, receiving life. But we come to this table and we say, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit and by the grace of God, would you renew a resolve inside of me to follow Jesus? Not my idea of who Jesus is, but a Jesus that makes me humble, that makes me teachable, a Jesus that makes me tender, a Jesus that makes me love my brother even when I disagree with him, a Jesus that says I don't know it all, a Jesus says that I will suffer and I will go through pain for the sake of your name and for the sake of my sister, a Jesus that says I will take the lower road, a Jesus that says God will you form me, will you teach, that's the Jesus that I wanna serve and that's the Jesus of this church Church. That's the Jesus of this church. Man. Come on, let's stand to our feet here. In the spirit of the table of the Lord, I want to read just the rest of the story here. So Saul ends up going to the city. And here's what I think is interesting. The scripture says that he was led by the hand. remember when Jesus was talking with Peter the end of John chapter 21 and Jesus says to Peter he says when you were young you clothed yourself and you fed yourself and you were self sufficient when you were young but Peter you're going to get old and you'll be led by the hand it speaks of utter dependency what if there weren't people around Saul when that encounter happened what if he was uh, an isolationist what if we bought into the privatized faith that the American culture so easily propagates that salvation is all about you and your relationship with Jesus? Guys, that is a product of our culture. That is not a product of the church or the Bible or Jesus. Because here's what happens I want you to read this with me. Look at verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple. There was a follower of Jesus. There was somebody that was listening. There was somebody that belonged to a community. There was someone that was faithful in the unglorious, hidden, quiet, unspectacular, boring, mundane moments. There was a disciple. Will it be said, in Colorado Springs, there was a disciple? Someone who was just willing to be just be hidden, but yet obey. Because here's what happens. Yes, Lord, he answered, and the Lord told him, verse 11, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come Place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem mindsets, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest, who call in your name. Look at verse 15. The Lord said, Go. Sometimes the Lord just needs to just say, Shut up. Do what I tell you to do. Stop arguing. Go. So he says. Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Come on up here, baby. When we follow Jesus, our paradigms will be upended. When we follow Jesus, we will learn how to love his people as a way of loving him. And when we follow Jesus, we will suffer. Paul said it like this in Philippians 3.10, I want to know him and I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Do you know how you do that? I want to put us all together for you right here. When you care about what someone's going through more than you care about you, When you care about someone's pain more than your experience, you are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus. Never understood that verse. That was some morbid verse. No. If Jesus can say, when you persecute them, you persecute me, he can also say, when you share in their sufferings, you're sharing in mine. And today we come to the table of the Lord to say, Jesus, we say yes. Jesus, would you completely turn upside down everything that was not from you that we thought was you? I give you permission. I give you permission to take all of the belief systems and the ideologies and the religious ideas that were not of you, Things that I picked up, things that I borrowed, things that I concocted, things that I wanted that were not of you. And God, today, I say to you, I say, would you shed them? Would you circumcise them? Would you cut them off of me? Would you reorient and realign my heart towards you as I participate in the body of Jesus? God, make us people that love each other. Make us people that share in the sufferings of Christ. Lord, as we care, as we listen, as we wait patiently, as we prefer, as we serve, as we submit, as we shut our mouth, as we pray, as we stop accusing and we intercede today, we identify we are the body of Christ. Let's take off the bread.
1: Father, now we look at the cup. Your blood that was shed for us. To redeem us. But God also to reconcile us. To reconcile us first to the Lord, God our Savior. But to also reconcile us to one another. God, your heart is reconciliation. That is your heart. That's who you are. And God, we ask for forgiveness where we have bumped against that, where we have not participated in reconciliation. Forgive us, Lord. But today, God, we realign our hearts. And we think that the blood of Jesus covers every sin. It covers every mistake. It covers every wrong intention. Or even right intention that went wrong, Lord. It covers it all. That today, God, we don't live under shame. We don't live under guilt condemnation but God that we live under the grace the grace of your blood that was shed for us thank you we take the cup now not just to remember but to also participate in your reconciliation in our life in Jesus name
0: Antioch Church we bless you today in the name of Jesus we bless you and we commission you and we empower you today in the name of Christ and by the power of his spirit go forth from this place go forth from this place alive in your spirit healthy in your body strong in the grace of the Lord go forth from this place on mission and on assignment to carry the message of the gospel and the goodness of God expressed in his kingdom to all around you every day at all times May the blessing and the peace of the Lord be with you. In Jesus' name.